0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, and policy. I really appreciate you being on this podcast, supporting this podcast, and uh, continuing to support it after years of its inception. Without you, listeners and viewers, this podcast does not exist. As you know, we tackle a variety of healthcare topics. Not all of these are related to oncology. And uh, we sometimes pivot out of healthcare topics. We even did an episode on Queen Elizabeth and her legacy, and we interviewed a British citizen for that. Today's podcast is about palliative care and hospice care. We all know what hospice care is and the end-of-life care, but I think there's a lot about palliative care and hospice care that sometimes we don't know, and some of this might be related to the difficulty in communicating end-of-life issues. Uh, We are going to have a lot of podcasts about communication, but I do think what, what I would like to know is a little bit of the differences between palliative care and hospice care. How can we make sure that these are designed in a way that patients are served best and they are served right? This is very important because unfortunately or fortunately, we are all going to die. And I think as we all approach mortality, we wanna make sure that we die in dignity and pain-free. If you ask a lot of patients what they fear the most, about dying. They are going to tell you pain. And I think it's important to recognize that to do that, we need supportive staff and we need a team of physicians and non-physician supporters who can really assure that patients are served right. I have the honor and privilege of hosting Dr. Kuljit Kapoor, who is an entrepreneur, an innovator, and an amazing physician and individual and a human being. Dr. Kapoor is an internist by training, a uh, geriatrician by training, but also she did advanced training in palliative care and hospice care and worked at various companies that provide these services to patients. She also holds an MBA degree, so she understands the business aspect of medicine. And what I asked Dr. Kapoor to comment on is a little bit more of explaining to us the difference between palliative care and hospice care, but to share with us her own experience with patients and with families and how she really deals with that, the impact of that on her own personal life, and how can this really affect what she is doing day in and day out. She recently branched out from this, and she is actually taking a different career path, which I'm not going to give you the spoiler. You'll have to listen to the entire podcast or view the entire podcast so you could know exactly what she is going to do. I think this is very timely. I think it is very important for us to talk about palliative care, to talk about hospice care. I think it's critical to address this topic to everyone, and I hope that you find value in this as I did. Now, before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Kapoor, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and you can watch all of the episodes on my YouTube channel, and don't forget to check out my website, www.shadynabhan.com. Furthermore, check out my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. This book launched on February 28, 2023. It is my first book, which means other books are coming. But this book describes the trials I testified in as an expert witness on behalf of the patients, the first three trials against Monsanto, all of which were won by the patients. So without further ado, Dr. Kuljit Kapoor on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. I know it's your first time appearing on this podcast. And look, if you play your cards right, you may appear again on Healthcare Unfiltered and we'll be very honored to to have you. But let's just start by getting to know you a little bit. Just tell our viewers and listeners who you are and a little bit of background. And then what happened that you ended up basically involved more in the palliative care and the end of life uh, setting in terms of clinical expertise?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me today, Chati. Um, I am um, a board-certified internal medicine, geriatric, palliative care, and hospice physician. Recently received my MBA. My career started in uh, geriatrics, I would say, at three years old. Um, my mother uh, used to take you know this young, precocious child into the nursing home setting to really spend time with the elderly population. And from there, my influence from My mother, as well as my father, who was very hard worker and an R&D chemist. Um, came about. Um, I was very comfortable in nursing homes. I always had an inclination toward medicine to really relieve suffering for people. And that was the avenue that I chose. And I went forward and felt that after doing internal medicine, I really wanted to complete that loop and that cycle for uh, the life of a uh, patient. And so I furthered my education by doing geriatric fellowship at Rush University downtown. And then I did hospice and palliative care fellowship combined with Rush, Cook County, and Midwest Hospice, at that time, which is now Journey Care, And as I evolved, you know, I worked as a medical director of a nursing facility. I also worked as a medical director of a hospice and then went larger scale to become a chief medical officer over a hospice and palliative care company. Through that experience, I felt that understanding and being a part of the, um, the stakeholders, all stakeholders, and being able to speak for them was important for me to understand the business side of medicine. So I pursued an MBA. And that's where I am right now.
0: But let's talk a little bit about uh, your decision to pursue palliative care and hospice care, where you obviously um, progressed, uh, you know, through, the, through your career to become chief medical officer. But, you know, was there something that led you that you wanted to do this? You wanted to be involved in palliative care, hospice care, or um, were you influenced by anyone? Uh, how did this happen?
1: So I would say that it's a it's a both. I, I felt there was such a reward in going to those most seriously ill patients and really being able to come up with a regimen and a plan of care that worked for them. I really believe in autonomy and palliative care is a kind of new and up and coming part of medicine where you're really able to promote symptom management and explore what the goals are for the patients while they're able to make decisions. And that was a big part of it. But the other part of it was that I enjoyed it. I have always been, you know, I always have navigated toward areas of enthusiasm. And I think that we evolve as people and as physicians. And I think that's really important to not, you know, keep our value only in one arena, but to be able to build upon it over time.
0: You know, some people might think of palliative care and hospice care, understandably, as a very sad specialty to be at. And um, I mean, were you sad taking care of these patients?
1: I would have to say, um, Dr. Navan, that I was in the beginning. Shady, shady. shadi. What
0: do you mean, Dr. Nobody, Nobody (laughs) on this podcast is ever allowed to call me doctor.
1: Okay. So I really felt in the beginning when I was very close with the patients, I would go out and see the patients as a provider. And that not only made me a good provider, but I got closer to the patients. That's when it was hard. You would come home and you would talk about, you know, how a person passed away. But you learned so much from those patients. Why does the breast cancer patient who has her arm falling off have a better attitude than maybe you or I in life? Uh, you know, going with the flow and saying, I can't go on that vacation, but that's okay, and making a joke out of it. So I've learned so much, but then over time it became less difficult because I realized that this is part of life and we are equipped to help people walk that path. I have so many wonderful stories of how patients really touched me.
0: Can you share with us one or two of these?
1: One story was where I was taking care of a melanoma patient. And melanoma patients may be having a lot of pain or no pain. And I stayed very late at this gentleman's house. Um, He was really struggling with his pain management. And so my- um... So, So
0: you would go and do house visits?
1: Yes. Yes, that was the beginning of my career. I was a um, IDG physician, and um, I would uh, because I wanted to learn all that I could learn. I went out and saw every patient on my team, and I, I remember this particular patient after we were adjusting his medication gave me a flower from his garden, and it was so symbolic because it was his appreciation. It was the reward of being able to manage that pain. And it was how much need he had that he he was feeling so good. Um, and I took that flower and I put it in my daughter's hair that day because she was the last one picked up at the daycare. And what went through my mind that day was, you know, she's okay. You know, she's, you know, well taken care of, you know, brought her home, fed her. She was wonderful. But that man was not okay. And at that moment in time, he needed me. And that is my mission. That was my purpose is what I realized at that time.
0: So when you were taking when you are taking care of uh, these patients day in and day out, there are two things I'd like you to to just reflect on. One, how does it affect your home life? I mean, you you I mean we're mm-hmm. humans, right? I mean, you come back home right. and you probably had three patients that died. And it's are you able to compartmentalize and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna be, you know. Different person, uh, despite what happened at work, is that easy or difficult on you? And the second thing I'd like you to talk about sure. is you know, sometimes when you see these patients, you wonder why they haven't really seen you early enough. Why are they so late? And let's start by the first one. How does this really sure. affect your just personal life, if you can?
1: Yes, I, I believe that it's important for all physicians to really develop the skills to be able to separate work from home and to compartmentalize. I like that word, I use that word a lot when I'm teaching young fellows or residents because you know there's sometimes you have something going on either in personal or you have something going on in professional and you have to divide it so that you're able to do your best where you are. Um, So over the years and after probably five years of doing palliative care and hospice in different settings, I became stronger. And I think that, you know, I, I started realizing that it's not a sad thing that happened. It's a beautiful thing that happened. I was able to provide and help provide with our staff. It's well not only me, it's always the team, provide dignity to this person. And so that leaves me with a feeling of calm, which is good. So the second part of your question is I think that over time we realized and I've realized in palliative care that we have to bring people on palliative care sooner than later, because it's an educational process. It's a process of understanding who that person is. It's a process of creating a relationship. And the sad part is if we don't do that, then they're not ready to go on to the comfort focused programs like hospice at the right time. And that's okay. In most places that I've worked, we we are still able to take care of that patient on palliative care. However, it depends, you know, where they're at in their understanding.
0: But, but, but the I thing is, you know, what, once, you tell, what, once you tell patients that you're going to refer them to palliative care, they assume that you're just giving up on them, that there's really no more care. Right. You just, I mean, you know, I mean, so from a, you know, if you're an internist, oncologist, cardiologist, and the minute you mention to a patient palliative care from a patient perspective, they're going to think you threw in the towel.
1: Sure. And that is a problem because it's the nomenclature. It's the, the semantics. We we have to do a good job, a better job as specialists, as well as, as providers to di- explain the difference between palliative care and hospice. Palliative care is symptom management. Palliative care is supportive care. It doesn't mean that it needs to go into the direction of hospice. I may just be managing their pain and they're going to be fine after their stem cell transplant. So this is just um, kind of changing it a little bit to a supportive care um, ideology that this is this person is part of the team and they're going to be here to manage any symptoms that you have that come about. They're going to be here to create a uh, rapport with you to support you psychosocially because this is very hard what you're going through. Uh, this is the whole idea. The whole idea of palliative care is really the care coordination being the center and keeping the services that help and getting rid of the services that are not helpful based on the prognosis of the patient.
0: Have you have you have you had scenarios where by the time you saw a patient for palliative care consults, you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I wasn't called early enough. Like, you know, I mean, oh, yes. why haven't they even yes. called me? Right. Can can you share an example and, and I will two? tell
1: you I have a great example. I was um, you know trick-or treating with my children this past year and uh, you know as a hospice and palliative care physician, you're always on call. you know you never know just like birth you never know when somebody's going to die or need you. So I was on the phone with a family member and this is a patient that had rectal cancer. They had gotten you know um, you know, he was really advancing with pain and pain advancing means disease is advancing. That's like a board question. And so I knew in the back of my mind, he's not doing well. He's probably not going to bounce back from this. Let's bump up the medications. There's probably an anxiety component. But she said, doc, I want a second opinion. And I said, well, you're always welcome to a second opinion. However, let's control the pain right now, okay? I think someone underdosed him. Let's double it. Call me in a half an hour. Let's talk in a half an hour. And then we, you know, when you know how to do this, it's all about follow-up. So what happened is the patient was very well controlled with pain. And I received a call that he died the next day. And that was, I had mixed feelings because I felt, you know, he did not die with pain. And I'm so glad that I was called during trick-or-treating. However, I felt bad that he wasn't referred early enough to understand where he was with his disease. That whole process of palliation, starting at the beginning of the diagnosis is necessary. And that is why we have you know, statistics of nine days to death in this this country of when somebody goes on hospice. Um, So I feel like we should be able to do better in this country uh, with our quality of death score and also bringing patients onto palliative care earlier.
0: So so when you say nine days to death, is that too short? Yes. What's an acceptable metric?
1: I feel that we should be bringing patients on one to two years in advance of their death to palliative care. And hospice is a benefit then we shift patients to when their estimated life expectancy becomes six months or less. And those are dictated not only by Medicare criteria with Palmetto, but this is somewhat subjective too. The longer you have done this, you know when there are certain criteria that the patient is meeting that they qualify. And it's always very sad they don't take advantage of that because it's really a free benefit with Medicare Part A, where everything is covered from the medications to the diapers to the services that are provided in the home.
0: So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, that you know palliative care should be involved within one to two years of the end of life. I just, I just have to tell you, I'm not really sure doctors are good in predicting. How well or bad patients will do. So it, it's a little bit arbitrary, right? I mean, I mean, how many times have we been wrong where we thought somebody's going to die sooner and they died later, and vice versa? I feel, I feel, we put ourselves occasionally on a pedestal and saying like we know it all, but I don't know. I, uh, what are your thoughts there?
1: I there was one time a physician, and remember, the longer you know a patient, um, you're going to over prognosticate that patient by six months, and. So- So I remember a physician telling me, no way, this patient's not going to pass away. He knew the patient longer than I. But I'm coming in as a consultant. and I said, doctor, with all due respect, this patient is not well. You know, we're giving this patient, you know, uh, when you start seeing the benefit and the burden going back and forth when you're giving a medication and then they're bleeding, you know, and then, you know, you stop that medication, they're not bleeding. That's the time the goals of care conversation needs to start and the palliative care should start. The prognosis is becoming worse. The weight's going down. There's many different criteria we use. However, in this situation, he said, absolutely not. I said, okay, you know, I just kind of agreed to disagree. And that patient died within four months without the services that the patient could have had, you know, and it's always a sad situation. So my job as a specialist is really to educate.
0: I want to go back. You mentioned uh, a couple of things. Um, It is, you know, nine days to death is what the average is in this country a what is the proper time and i mentioned you mentioned six months and i have no idea how we predict six months but b Uh how do we compare to other countries like when you say nine days Uh i'm thinking well i don't know that seems good to me um Uh, But uh, what's the like, how do we decide what's good or bad? And how do we compare to, I don't know, Europe, India, Mm -hmm. China, Mm -hmm. uh, Middle East?
1: Sure. Um, I've actually looked at this. You know, the quality of death index is really, um, you know, the idea of, you know, how how that process goes. And other countries have been higher. England, for example, is very high on the quality of death index. Um, uh, In fact, um, you know, United States is is. you know probably you know second tier in that way and so we have a lot of work to do um but i think when it comes to predicting the end of life we have certain criteria which are medicare criteria also um they're called lcds and these criteria we have to meet in order for the patient to qualify in this country at least for hospice it's a little bit different in america because we we are very good about giving autonomy to patients. In other countries, the doctor will come and say, you know what, it's time for hospice, we're putting you on hospice, right? So they maybe don't give the choice, but they have that, that grip and that relationship with the patient and the patient trust the physicians that when they say that, that's what needs to happen. But there's a lot of these
0: cultural barriers are real. Like I think it's very... It's very difficult for anyone to be facing their own mortality, you know.
1: It very much is. And I think that it's very different within different ethnic groups. I would say, um, you know, I am first-generation Indian. And, you know, it was kind of a joke. I asked my dad, you know, what he would want in a situation where there would be uh, no meaningful chance of survival. And he said, Kuljeet, I'm not there yet. You know, let's not talk about it. <laughs> so there is a cultural component, and then if you go into the African American population or the Hispanic population, um, it is it is a little bit of a distrust of the healthcare system. If you do tell them and maybe the prognosis, they have been um, not treated fairly in different situations, so they don't trust that what you're telling them is true. So that is a barrier. So it takes many conversations.
0: So. You know, we mentioned families. That's really interesting because Mm -hmm. I think dealing with the patient is one thing on clinical grounds and medical grounds. Then you've got the family and um, the family sometimes wants you to do more than what you could do. There's a lot of dynamics there. Um, And there are times where they say, I want IV fluids. I want G-tube to get nutrition. I want X, Y, and Z. Tell me about the palliative care physician and the hospice mm-hmm. physician, how do you deal with the family dynamics when you sense that what they want from you is something that is more than what you should be doing?
1: Yes, I will tell you that that's a process in learning how to deal with families and these situations. I will uh, humbly say I'm very good at it at this point, 10 plus years beyond in the career. But the first time I tried to do it as a physician, I was fired off of the case. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, they said, you're trying to kill my family member. And I said, no, I'm not. (laughs) You're turning down the IV fluids, but that and you're turning things off. But I, you know, they didn't understand that you're going to drown in those fluids. So, You know gotten better with people skills over time and also gauging your audience and so this has to be a process in some cases you can't bring up hospice you can't bring up different you know um, modalities very quickly so transfusions blood draws do not hospitalize um these are iv fluids g-tube we give them the statistics Okay, so in a dementia patient, you know, the chance if you come to six months or less estimated survival of you coming out of a resuscitative effort is 1% or less. So we give them the statistics and then we let them make the decision. You show them on YouTube what a CPR looks like, okay? How aggressive it is and if it would really benefit. We go back to what the goals of the patient really would be. You know, sometimes the power of attorneys think they make the decisions, they don't. They're just acting on the behalf of their parent. I have been there. I, we have acted on the behalf of my mother when she was on event and we said, well, she would kill us if she let if, if she you know, we, we continued on like this. Right. You have to know, you know, your parent, you have you have to pick your power of attorneys wisely. So we bring up all of that as discussion. The last thing I'll mention is in extubation to comfort measures, I take the approach of we don't have to turn it off or pull it out. OK, I take the approach of, you know what? let's just not turn up the settings if something were to happen, okay? Let's leave everything where it is. Your family member's not doing well. Likely this is going to go down. Let's get the do not resuscitate in place, and we just will not turn things out. They are going to pass away anyways. So it makes it easier for the survivors that way, and I think that's been successful.
0: Do you think, Kuljit, that uh, trainees like residents, students, fellows get enough exposure where by the time they are finishing their training, if they don't do advanced fellowship, do you think they are getting enough education how to manage, A, the communication piece, and B, the management piece?
1: I do not believe so. I think that it is... is is. Um, uh now becoming a little bit more uh, mainstream to involve uh, palliative care and rotations and geriatrics. But really, I feel like it it should be more of a formal rotation that is required because not only do you learn communication, people skills, symptom management, you know, I would consider myself a pain specialist um, and also just learning how to navigate prognosis by looking at different signs with the patient.
0: Yeah. I mean I, I agree with you. I think I think we should really train people how to manage pain a little bit better, but but I, I also feel that there's this um barrier where uh, I've encountered with some of my patients where occasionally they worry, uh, they they don't want they they don't wanna tell you how much pain they have in. Yes. And and let's face it, you know, you know what happened, and, and this is not about opioid p- epidemic, but you know, there has been a lot of data that we over-treated pain also, right? I mean, that you sure. know, there were situations where patients became addicted because of our pain management. And obviously this doesn't apply at the end of care, but but from a patient perspective, they worry. I mean, I have had patients who yeah. have very limited life expectancy telling me I'm worried about getting addicted.
1: Sure. And that and what I say in response to that, because I get that a lot, is that your physiologic, well, we don't use the word physiologic or pathologic. I kind of break it down a little bit further. Your ability to get, you know, addicted is very low when you have real pain from a physiologic standpoint. And, you know, if there has been addiction in the past, you know, you need to give higher doses. But I think the the point is we have to get down to the psychosocial the psychosomatic component of pain, which I think that we do not identify readily. And that is why the opioid crisis happened, is because I think that people were treating their anxiety with narcotics. And I think that this is a multifactorial approach we really need to be taking to the patient. And palliative care is exactly that.
0: So I want to talk a little about the team. So the palliative care team and the hospice team, um, you obviously did both, but are there differences? Like, you know, you, you are the physician on the team. Who else do you have on your team and how they are different in the palliative care team versus the sure. hospice care team?
1: Sure. It's just in, in general. So palliative care will have a physician. It will have the advanced practice mid-levels. And there is often a social worker and ancillary support from a case manager or an LPN who's doing kind of the orders in the background. That's at least the way it was in the recent company I've worked. And, in, and the coverage for palliative care is just like if you go to a cardiologist, okay? It's Medicare Part B. Now, the services provided with that are limited. So what we do is we use home health in the community to see the patient with us. Who home health is covered by Medicare Part A, so you're getting the best for the patient. But the idea is you have to communicate. That's where things can go wrong. One person is doing one thing, other person is doing another thing, and we really have to work together. Now, in contrast, hospice is covered by Medicare Part A. Either you have hospice, you have home health, or you have post-acute care, which is like when people come out of the hospital and go into a nursing home. That's what you can do for Medicare Part 8. When somebody goes from palliative care into hospice, they get rid of the home health and the hospice then takes over. You have a social worker, a chaplain, nurses that will see the patient two to three times per week, and you will have your um, different levels of care as well. Okay, So there's routine care. Most people are on routine care that's reimbursed at a different rate. You have your continuous care. If I had an unmanaged symptom, I could send somebody into their home 24 to 48 hours. To manage that symptom with callbacks to me so that I could get it managed. General inpatient level of care, different reimbursement that's typically in a standalone unit or in a nursing home. And then there's also respite. Say the caregiver needs a break. I had a dementia patient once and you know there was a son that was taking care of his mother and he needed a little bit of a break and I suggested respite and he went and you can do that up to five days. It doesn't have to be full five days but the hospice covers it. So this is Fully covered medications. You can still see your doctor. We do not get rid of all of the medications. Everybody says, okay, they're going to take everyone everything away.
0: Yeah, but the team—the team for hospice. Do you have a psychologist, for example? Is a psychiatrist involved? Is there somebody who addresses psycho, psycho psychological? The social
1: social worker. A social worker. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there's a chaplain.
0: So I want to pivot into the business aspect. I think you already started alluding to it, but I want to try to explain to viewers and listeners a little bit in terms of the coverage in that piece. And I believe you delved into the business aspects when you went back to school and get an MBA. What led you decide to get an MBA?
1: So um, first of all, I'm just really ambitious, which I need to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but but I, I do feel, you know, I. I really enjoy the business side of medicine. I think I have a lot to bring to the table in different arenas of business. And I think it's really nice for doctors to have a seat at the table with the people making the decisions about the patients that we take care of. We have to have that voice and that's the main reason I did it.
0: Got it. Okay, so I I I really want folks to understand the insurance piece we're going to start with medicare and medicaid government uh, payments mm-hmm. for palliative care and for hospice care okay so and then we'll go to commercial payers but for palliative care is this considered like any other consult So, an oncologist i'm seeing a patient i want to send this yes. patient to a kidney specialist uh is it the same
1: at this point in time it is um, now that can be a very complex question because now we're moving into value-based medicine. But yes, Medicare Part B will cover a palliative care consultation just like any other specialist.
0: Okay, and then and then obviously in palliative care you have additional medications that you may want to prescribe. Let's say some of them are IV, some of them are are oral, like the standard. As if as if mm-hmm. I am just doing everything. Sure. The only thing I was going to ask you, I mean, obviously. Sometimes our treatments are, um, you know, in cancer, we may want to give radiation therapy uh, that might alleviate the pain for somebody. And they have limited life expectancy. And my understanding is some hospitals allow that, some hospitals don't.
1: That's correct. And I will say I've worked at both. You know larger companies have the bandwidth and the finances to be able to support that but with a wean plan and smaller companies just say look keep them on palliative care we'll shift them when they're done
0: okay so now for the hospice piece um hospice is completely covered by medicare like patients do not pay anything
1: yes so it all comes down to what the terminal diagnosis is And uh, that's very important to understand because if you have a patient, for example, who has breast cancer, but they have an unrelated myelodysplastic disorder, this has happened. um, They can continue to get the transfusions that they were getting for the myelodysplastic syndrome. And I've had people sent home from their oncologist and they said, you're on hospice now. And I sent them right back. I said, the coverage... The the coverage for the terminal uh, prognosis, all the meds are covered, everything is covered, but the other part of Medicare is going to still cover anything unrelated to the terminal diagnosis. So I, I said, you can do that, but when you get too weak and now you're passing from the breast cancer progression, then it doesn't make sense for you to go get those transfusions, right? I may authorize one, if it makes you feel good, will, a hospice will pay for it, because it's all about comfort, not the lifeline at that point.
0: But the Medicare is covering all of this based on the terminal diagnosis that you mentioned. Yes. And when you say if you decide to do something out of the norm that Medicare does not cover, then the hospice company or the hospice hospital wherever they they cover that out of their own budget.
1: Yes. They do, because there's a per diem um, based on the the level of the care, right? Routine level of care, continuous care. You get money every day for taking care of that patient. And so within that amount of money you get, you have to pay for the services they receive as well.
0: And then, you know, obviously what you mentioned is that the average is nine days to death. So I presume mm-hmm. Medicare is is okay with that, uh, obviously they wanted longer, but, but the, the question is, has it been a situation where somebody was in hospice and then got out of hospice because they did yes. better than they thought they were gonna do?
1: Yes, and I've had many examples like that. I've had some prostate cancer patients, for example, that I'm um, like, you are not sick enough for me anymore, you know, sir. <laughs> and so- <laughs>
0: That's a good news.
1: That's a good news, you've graduated. Um, so there's been other situations where, for example, in congestive heart failure, I had two children while one lady was still on hospice. I said, lady, no, I didn't say lady. I said, you, you don't qualify anymore because you still meet soft criteria. However, you're not showing progression at this point in time. We're going to put you on the palliative care program.
0: Okay. How about public aid and Medicaid folks who are Mm -hmm. on public aid? Is it also covered?
1: Yes. And that's a beautiful thing, our, as our country does take care of uh, the patients who need help. Um, I have trained in with the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich, Cook County, Rush. Okay. So I've also helped with like undocumented, you know, patients, you know, mail order brides, you know, I've, I've really been able to see how we can help navigate the system to make sure that patients in our country are taken care of. Sometimes people don't have coverage, but those are sometimes, I don't know, you know, the patients I give the most attention because it's it's just sad that the situation that they're in and, um, you know, whatever I can do within the boundaries of, you know, the company that I am, even if it's a free service, you know, we can still be creative in taking care of people.
0: How about commercial payers? Because these are very different, right? I mean, they're you know they may have different criteria. What 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 has been your experience and observation for commercial payers?
1: Commercial payers have been no, not an issue. Um, most commercial payers will cover hospice benefit if the physician states that they meet um, eligibility.
0: Okay. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the eligibility? I mean, I think think a lot of us probably, you know, they know the eligibility, but not necessarily in a systematic manner.
1: Sure, sure. So every disease that we bring a patient on for hospice has different criteria that you need to meet to say that they're terminal, estimated at six months or less, if the disease runs its normal course. Now for example, with a um, dementia, you need to have, have seen at least 10% weight loss within six months or 5% in three months. You have to have had, you know, for example, with Alzheimer's, the patient needed to have a very serious infection or a sacral pressure ulcer or something showing the catabolism. Um, the other piece of that- not and, and not all,
0: one, not all of these, like one of them? Like people have to have one of them or all of these?
1: Typically, um, they will need to have all of them. And so the other piece with Alzheimer's, for example, is they need to meet a fast criteria of 7C. That means that cognitively, they've reached a point where the cognition is affecting their movement, brain movement, that they are not able to walk anymore. And God. so that, that those are specific scales. We use the ECOG scale for functional status too. Function guides prognosis, and so does disease symptoms symptom
0: burden okay so in terms of you know from a business perspective from a payer perspective from, from a cost on a patient perspective all of this is covered including a respite care which you mentioned which is really yes. very interesting are yes. there any additional coverage for post death bereavement services or even funeral services even burial services
1: Yes, uh, not for funeral. However, I have seen some creative situations with funds that can become, you know, a charity that's been given to the hospice where they help pay. I've had owners at other companies that have just paid for the funeral out of their pocket. That was the company before my last company, which I thought was beautiful. Each company that I've I've worked at had different beautiful resources that they've been so wonderful with their patients. Um, However, the bereavement is when you're with a hospice company, it's always covered for 13 months after the patient passes.
0: How many hospices are out there? Let's talk about Illinois. I mean, I don't know. Like, just I'm just I'm just curious as to I'm just trying to think of the. Uh, I mean, how many people die a day in the state of Illinois, for example? How many yeah. hospices? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I obviously when I was seeing patients, I had like mm-hmm. two or three hospices I basically worked with. Uh, mainly, but I have no idea how many hospitals are out there.
1: There are hundreds. And I will tell you- In the that state, have... in
0: just like one state? We're talking just yes. state of Illinois.
1: Yes. And I will tell you some are bigger, some are smaller. And uh, I can give you an example, You know, with a census of about 800 people in, for example, um, and in Illinois, maybe 600 people, I would be signing about 10, five to 10 death certificates a day for that type of census, there's a portal in okay. Illinois. I'd be signing them all.
0: Yeah. So, so all of these hospitals are busy. Like, I mean, I, I guess in your experience, why would a physician or a family utilize one hospice services versus another?
1: Really, it's it's a it's a choice. Um, different networks have preferred providers. Uh, it's the quality of the care. It's the uh, nursing staff. It's the management. There's many different reasons. However, you know there is a way that you can check the quality of hospice companies online. You know Medicare.gov, and I think that there are certain quality metrics that you know I think at baseline should be met before you select a company.
0: I have to tell you, Guljit, I had no idea there are hundreds of hospice. I thought tens. To be honest. I mean, I thought tens, <laughs> but hundreds of hospitals in one yes. state. Um mm-hmm. uh, and these are uh, I mean, are there some hospitals that are national? Like they have branches all over the yes. country.
1: Yes, there are. Um accent care. And now what we're seeing, you know, that's an example. Now what we're seeing is that. A bigger hospice is absorbing a smaller hospice. That's the way healthcare is going, as we see also with accountable care organizations taking over smaller entities. And that's why now value based medicine and being reimbursed differently is really where we're at in healthcare. We're being reimbursed for quality over quantity now
0: this is fascinating to me. I mean, this is like learning about all of this is fascinating. There's like a human element of this. There's also the teaching element of this. And there's also the financial reimbursement slash business element of this. So what's next for you? What are you still, are you staying in that uh, arena in terms of, I know you said you've done this, you became a chief medical officer and you got your MBA. Are you staying in that in that field, are you thinking of branching out? What are your what, what are what what do you think you're going to do?
1: Yeah, so I think as we evolve as human beings, you know, I think that our enthusiasm is going to differ for different areas of medicine. I think I chose right. I did internal medicine, which covers everything, so I have that choice to really pivot into a different arena. Um, and really explore now I've tried out the business side and, and the hospice and palliative care um I at, and the next step would be to work in a post-acute care setting and really try um you know to to um, promote the, the growth and at an executive level in a post-acute setting. my feel is that an ability my ability to make an impact is not kind of in, in one area of medicine and I think in order to you know, do that, we have to find what energizes us. We have to find what, you know, fills our cup. And at this point in time, I've also branched into medical cosmetics, as well as artificial intelligence, working with a wonderful uh, gentleman in downtown Aprilville with harder investments. And I am able to really learn about medical cosmetics and other ways of promoting quality of life and well-being with patients. Um, The other piece to that is going completely
0: opposite from (laughs) hospice care to cosmetics.
1: It helps with the skin, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's that's the beauty of it. Um, And then also, you know, I'm so excited by it because it's it's just very different than what I've done for 10 years. Also, with harder investments, I'm working on promoting and championing a product called um, first look intubation. And this is uh, with guidance airway and it's an intubation device that has been developed and it will by Bluetooth technology go into the right space and even spray you know, the uh, lidocaine that's needed. Um, so this is just such a up and coming you know, area that I've even learned about in MBA school. I've read so many articles on artificial intelligence, technology, accounting. I'm like, let's use it, you know? So pivoting a little bit is a good thing.
0: I think chat GPT is going to control our lives. That's it.
1: I just read about that. I I was like, wow, I just wrote that person's paper.
0: (laughs) I need to, I need to utilize it more. Cool. This was really a lot of fun. Anything I should have covered or asked you about um, hospice palliative care and the impact of that, that I completely overlooked and I did not, that you think is beneficial to listeners and viewers to understand and know?
1: I think that um, you did a great job with asking all the questions. We covered a lot. Um, I think on the surface level, people just need to understand there is a difference between palliative care and hospice. And I think you know, the way of the business side is always going to change, but we always, whatever we do, need to keep the patient at the center. So I think we covered we covered it well.
0: I do like how you mentioned earlier, though, if we just change the nomenclature from palliative care to supportive care in certain yeah. scenarios... I mean, we give, we give, when I, when I prescribe something for nausea and vomiting before chemotherapy, that is palliative care. I am palliating um, the symptom of nausea and vomiting for that patient, right? I mean, I give chemotherapy for pain for somebody who has cancer that's causing pain, although they may have like two years to live, but the chemotherapy is also palliating the symptoms.
1: you, You bring up such a good point. Every good internist and doctor will practice palliative care. And I, how I explain it is palliative care is specialized in internal medicine and hospice is specialized palliative care. You get more specialized toward the end of life.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kuljit Kapoor on the thank Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I hope we have you again. And we're going to learn more next time I have you on. We're going to talk about your career in medical cosmetics.
1: Okay. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Folks, thank you very much for listening to the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. I appreciate your support. And don't forget to let me you know what you think and provide feedback. You can do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi finding me on LinkedIn, or visiting my website at www.shadinabhan.com. I also would like to for you to check out uh, my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice, Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Kuljit Kapoor for coming on the show and sharing with us her wisdom, her expertise, and her knowledge about palliative care and hospice care, and how can we even navigate the business aspect of things, reimbursement, and payers, because ultimately what we need to do is to make sure patients receive the most important information to move forward. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying and a quote from Winston Churchill. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference until next time take care